Amy Svitalnik, the Executive Director of Integrity First for America. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. You know, Amy, we're a month removed about, actually a little bit more than a month, from January 6th insurrection in this country. Does this moment in time right now feel familiar to you in any way? For many people who have been engaged in fighting extremism, January 6th felt like a sadly inevitable culmination of years of hate, of disinformation, of bigotry, and of incitement to violence. And so what we said at the time, which still certainly remains true, is that if you were surprised on January 6th, you haven't been paying attention. And it's a heartbreaking thought that this is where we are as a nation right now. But I think for probably you and your colleagues and certainly us and many others, it was sort of like waiting for the other shoe to drop for a very long time. And January 6th felt like that, although we also know, as you and many others have been talking about, that it's not an endgame, but rather a recruitment tool and a flashpoint in this continued cycle of far-right extremist violence. It would be great if we could start a little bit by telling us more about Integrity First for America and what you guys are focused on. So IFA is a small civil rights nonprofit. We were founded in 2017, knowing that there would be gaps in the civil rights enforcement that has become so critical to protecting people and communities around this country. Looking at the Jeff Sessions Department of Justice that happened to be in power at the time. It was very clear that that civil rights division and that DOJ would not be necessarily pursuing these sorts of cases with the enthusiasm of their predecessors, to sort of put it lightly, if you will. And so IFA was conceived of and founded in 2017 around the same time that Charlottesville happened. And anyone that watched that unfold in Charlottesville in August of 2017, I think, felt in their core, so viscerally, how egregious of an attack this was on every value that was central to our democracy and to our fundamental rights. And watching neo-Nazis carrying tiki torches, intentionally chosen to evoke the KKK and the Nazis, chanting things like Jews will not replace us in blood and soil, beating up counter-protesters at the Thomas Jefferson statue, and of course the next day, really a weekend of violence that culminated in the car attack that killed Heather Heyer, that injured many of our plaintiffs. It was a weekend of violence that was not an accident, but rather it was planned for months in advance. And so it was very clear as soon as Charlottesville happened that something needed to be done and that, again, this federal government was very unlikely to be pursuing accountability and justice in the aftermath of Charlottesville that we so desperately needed. And so in partnership with our incredible legal team, which is led by Roberta Kaplan and Karen Dunn, we were on the ground within a couple of days. Robbie and others were talking to potential plaintiffs who were injured in the violence. And it became very clear that what happened was, again, not an accident, but rather a meticulously planned conspiracy to bring racist violence to Charlottesville. And for months in advance, as 
Discord social media chats and other social media chats have since shown these neo-Nazis and white supremacists planned every last detail of what happened from the mundane and banal, you know, what to wear, what to bring for lunch, what the best way is to sew a swastika onto a flag. When Hannah Arendt talks about the banality of evil, this is truly it, but also the vile and the violent. They talked about how to use free speech instruments like flagpoles as weapons And they talked about whether they could hit protesters with cars and claim self-defense, which is, of course, precisely what happened. And so this isn't protected conduct. This isn't protected speech. This is a racist, violent conspiracy to attack a community and target people based on their race, religion, and willingness to defend the rights of others. And we have laws that protect against that, including a statute that is in the news again this week called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 specifically designed to protect against these sorts of racist, violent conspiracies. I was actually going to ask you specifically about that. You know, as the country was grappling with a wave of violence in in 2017, and, and even now, this act of 1871 was about dealing with people who were acting out against recently freed slaves, right, in violence. And so how are you sort of taking that act and applying it to the situation, at least in 2017? So the Ku Klux Klan Act is a fascinating statute. And I think there's a particular, I don't know if irony is the right word, but there's something powerful and, and sad about the fact that 150 years after it was first passed, it has become relevant once again because of rising far right extremist violence in this country. And when we go to trial this fall, it will be exactly 150 years since the statute first became law. So this was a law, as you said, that was passed to protect recently freed slaves from Klan vigilante violence in the South. These Klansmen would use violence as a means to undermine recently freed slaves' 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment rights. It was the use of violent conspiracies to undermine people's civil rights. And so the Ku Klux Klan Act was passed by the Reconstructionist Congress to provide a number of different ways for people to hold accountable those who were using violence for these awful purposes. In our case, when you look at the facts of what happened in Charlottesville, how meticulously the violence was planned, how it was fueled by racism, by anti-Semitism, by xenophobia, by Islamophobia, and other forms of bigotry, this is precisely what the act was meant to protect against. And the conspiracy that we detail in our lawsuit is exactly what the Ku Klux Klan Act was designed to give private plaintiffs like ours a means of recourse for, a way to hold accountable those responsible for this racist, violent conspiracy. It's hard not to look at the events of the last few years and not see parallels to the darkest times in our history. But I also think that there's a big difference, which is that we live in a country that has a rule of law, that has a justice system, and we can use them to fight back against this rising extremism, which is exactly what we're doing in this case. Do you think the lawsuit has already had an impact on elements of the white supremacist movement, even though we know in the fall this will move forward? Absolutely. And this has been one of the most heartening parts of this effort. Our trial was originally supposed to take place last year. COVID happened. It's now taking place this October in federal court in Charlottesville. And we think that in and of itself will be quite powerful, both in terms of the accountability we'll seek at trial, the large financial judgments we expect to win against the defendants, 
and the power of having a jury trial like that in which a jury of Virginia residents holds accountable those responsible for this violence. But we've seen very strong impacts even before trial. I've been saying lately that I think in some ways Richard Spencer has served as a better spokesperson for our case than anyone else can, because in court a few months ago, he complained that our case is, quote, financially crippling and whined about how he can no longer raise money because he's been deplatformed from a number of social media sites. And I don't think anything can sort of put a finer point on the importance of accountability than one of the country's former leading neo-Nazis talking about how he's been crippled as a result of that sort of accountability. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, you know, if you really want to know the way actions impact the extremists, just listen to what they have to say. They'll tell you exactly the impact that it has. And that's exactly right. I think we need to believe these extremists when they say something, whether it be telegraphing what they intend to do on January 6th, as we saw leading up to the Capitol insurrection, but also when they say that deplatforming works, lawsuits work, accountability works. And so we've been in many ways heartened by the impact it's had. And it's not just Richard Spencer. We've had defendants like League of the South talk about how they can't open a new building because of our suit. We've won large financial penalties against a number of defendants in the tens of thousands of dollars. We've even had defendants like Elliot Klein sit in jail as a result of this case, which in a civil suit is particularly extraordinary, with bench warrants out for his arrest um, last year and for another defendant's arrest in recent months. And just a few months ago, we won something called adverse inferences or evidentiary sanctions which means that we've effectively won our case against Elliot Klein, who is one of the key organizers of the violence in Charlottesville. So when we go to trial this fall, it means that the judge will instruct the jury to treat as an established fact that Klein conspired to bring violence to Charlottesville in 2017, which is a pretty central allegation of our lawsuit. And it sounds like, whether it's Richard Spencer saying this, or League of the South, or other white supremacists responding to the impact, that ultimately it's demonstrating a level of accountability that I think a lot of people were concerned was not happening as extremists of all kinds, but in particular white supremacists were appearing to get more and more emboldened for a period of time. And I think that brings me to today where we've seen 200-something people arrested for their activities in D.C. on January 6th. And, And can you just talk about why accountability is so important beyond just that it makes it more difficult for extremists to act. There's something that the country needs, something about accountability that goes to fundamentally what we need to expect out of our country. That's exactly right. And accountability matters for those precise two reasons. It matters because we see the very real financial, legal, and operational impacts it has on these extremists. When they are actually held to account in court through suits like ours, it has very tangible impacts, and that is important in and of itself. And if we as a small nonprofit can financially cripple neo-Nazis like Richard Spencer, imagine what, for example, the Department of Justice could do if it used the full weight of its power against these extremists, which we're starting to see now through some of the fallout from January 6th. But it's also important because this is a democracy. This is a country that's supposed to be predicated on the protection of our fundamental rights. And when extremists like these white supremacists are allowed to 
grow increasingly emboldened, increasingly powerful with very little consequences, it sends a message that that's okay and that some people's rights matter more than others. And in a country that is predicated on equal justice or that is supposed to be predicated on this idea of equal justice, that stunning lack of accountability over the last few years has allowed this movement to grow increasingly emboldened, increasingly powerful, and increasingly expansive in a way that never should have been allowed to happen in the first place. And so when there is real accountability, real justice, it makes all the difference, not just in mitigating the impact and the power of specific defendants in suits like ours, but in also creating a deterrent effect to others who might consider being a part of this sort of violence. Many of the groups that were involved in 2017 in August in Charlottesville no longer exist. They basically change their name, they break apart, they create other groups. Does that present a challenge moving forward, or is that not necessarily relevant to the ability to hold them accountable? It's a great question. The short answer is that we will be holding these groups and these leaders accountable no matter how they try to rebrand or whatever other excuse they throw our way. And we've seen a variety of these excuses over the last few years. We've had, for example, defendant Nathan D'Amigo talk about how he's bankrupt and therefore shouldn't face liability in this case. And our legal team had those claims thrown out two years ago with the court saying, no, you still have to face liability for your actions, no matter if you claim you're bankrupt. We've seen Identity Europa try to rebrand as the American Identity Movement and claim they therefore are not liable here. The same thing with National Socialist Movement, which reincorporated in Florida with a new commander that also tried to claim that they are not liable here in some ways. And every step of the way, we and the courts have made clear that no, you are still liable for your actions in 2017, even if you rebrand in 2018 or 2019 or 2020. Of course, this speaks to a broader challenge that we face in this case, the fact that neo-Nazis don't really believe in the rule of law and have tried every trick in the book to escape accountability, whether it be flouting court orders, claiming their phone has fallen in the toilet, which is an excuse that has come up not infrequently in this case. And so we've faced a number of challenges in which these defendants have tried every trick in the book to avoid accountability, and our team has not left them off the hook. We've also been able to have very real financial, legal, and operational impacts on them before trial because of how flagrantly they flouted those court orders. I'm really struck by just obviously the similarities between the lead up to Charlottesville in 2017 and what we saw on January 6th, but but also the differences that do show how this movement has evolved significantly over time. And, and, you know, for example, I think in Charlottesville, so many of the folks that showed up, neo-Nazis, militias even, anti-Semites, right, bigots of all kinds, they were filling some sort of extremist bucket one way or another. And what we saw on January 6th was sort of the result of how those messages that have accumulated over time impacted a much broader range of people, right? So there weren't card-carrying members of every group. In fact, some of them may not have even heard of many of the groups that, you know, showed up. We, we recently did our own study where we identified 200 plus people who were part of the siege at the Capitol. Out of about 800, we've identified 200 plus. 
about 25% of those were members of, you know, Proud Boys or white supremacist group or QAnon adherents. But that means a full 75%, you know, were not part of any of those established uh, movements or groups, and yet believed in the same conspiracies to some degree, were motivated to similar extremist actions. And so could you talk a little bit about the evolution there and knowing that average Joe and Jane are now part of this? How do we address that? I think that's exactly right. And the report that you all put out on this is incredibly important and illustrates the mainstreaming of extremism in America right now. And it's this mainstreaming of extremism that we didn't just see at the Capitol. While, of course, the Capitol was perhaps the most obvious manifestation of it, we're also seeing it, of course, with members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are in their official capacities espousing some of the views that are directly tied to the sort of violence and extremism we saw in Charlottesville and Pittsburgh and El Paso and beyond. And so understanding how extremism has been mainstreamed in ways that extend beyond these traditional white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups and bring in these newcomers, if you will, who might not have necessarily been part of official white supremacist groups or any other broader extremist actions is a sadly perfect illustration of what's happening here and how this has evolved. Is that going to be more difficult to hold them accountable? Meaning, was the fact that so many of the people who showed up in Charlottesville were connected, at least to an ideology or movement, if not specifically any one group, does it make it more difficult to hold them accountable legally if that connection does not exist? I don't think it should at the end of the day. The people who were involved with the Capitol insurrection might have come from sort of a broader bucket, if you will, than those we saw in Charlottesville or others who have been involved with some of the acts of violent extremism we've seen in recent years. We also know that many of the same tools and tactics we saw in Charlottesville were utilized ahead of the Capitol. And that includes, for example, extensive social media discussions in which Details were planned very similarly to what we saw in Charlottesville. Discussion, for example, of using free speech instruments as weapons, much like in Charlottesville, we saw a police officer beaten with a flagpole at the Capitol. And so understanding the ways in which these tools and tactics have been utilized over and over again, even if the base of support for this extremism has morphed in different ways means that effectively the Department of Justice and many others have been handed on a silver platter, if you will, a lot of stunning evidence that ties these extremists in whatever form they took to the violence. And while um, there's still a lot to be seen and a lot to be done in terms of what DOJ and others might pursue here, we've seen some initial conspiracy cases against various pockets of the insurrectionists. We've seen cases against, for example, a number of Proud Boys. There's now a civil lawsuit against the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and Trump and Giuliani. There's various forms of accountability that have now come out from the Capitol insurrection over the last few weeks. We also know that there's more that can be done as the evidence continues to be collected here. And our hope is that DOJ will bring up some more sweeping conspiracy case against those responsible for January 6th whether they are individuals or whether they are groups. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit here. What sort of brought you into this line of work? I think listeners sort of are interested in the paths that people can take. 
for me, I was working in government and politics for a very long time before I came to IFA. Most recently, I was in the New York Attorney General's office as a senior policy advisor and communications director. And I took that job in 2016, not knowing where our country was going. A couple weeks after I started in the AG's office, the 2016 election happened. And very quickly, our office was on the front lines of these national fights for people's fundamental rights and fundamental dignity. The Muslim ban was the first lawsuit we filed against the Trump administration just a couple days into the administration. Of course, from there, there was no shortage of lawsuits and other legal actions that we had to take to protect New Yorkers' rights and, frankly, all Americans' rights at a moment when they were being so targeted and undermined. We also saw an alarming rise in hate crimes and extremism, not just nationally, but in New York and in New York City and other places where you think we might be immune to some of this bigotry. But in fact, it's where it exists sometimes in its worst forms. And so we were also out there working with local governments, local law enforcement to make sure that they understood their obligations and responsibilities to enforce hate crimes laws and protect their communities. It became very clear in 2016 as the world was changing the importance of this sort of accountability and justice. And while it had always informed my work in government, it was never as clear as it was when those horrific attacks on people's rights started happening, not just nationally, but in my own backyard in New York. And so in the course of my work in the EG's office, I met Roberta Kaplan, who had represented Edie Windsor in the landmark Supreme Court case that struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. And in 2018, she called me up and said, do you want to help us sue Nazis? I don't know how you say no to that question. I mean, I don't know how anyone says no to Robbie Kaplan in general. She is a force and it's impossible to say no to her, but it's particularly hard to say no to a question like that. And so when I came on board at IFA, it just felt like the natural culmination, if you will, of both the work I had been doing, but a very fortunate confluence of events that sort of landed me in this place and allowing me to get to be part of this fight. If it's a fight that we need to have, I feel very lucky to get to be a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> if somebody says, do you want to sue Nazis? The right answer is yes. Yes, I do. Exactly. Um, this means that even before Charlottesville, and I know how much blood, sweat and tears you've put into this case, but you've been dealing with this for a while. How do you deal with this professionally? The realities of this can be challenging. How do you approach that? Well, I'm always taking advice on that front. There's always a lot more that I can be doing that our team can be doing to be better at stepping away from the awfulness from time to time. I'm sure it's something you and your team think about quite a lot as well. It's so easy in this moment to just be totally trapped in this news cycle and the constant array of awful things that are happening. And so this plays out in a number of different forms. It means, first and foremost, our job at IFA is to keep our entire team and our plaintiffs safe. Frankly, the biggest item in our budget is security funding, and we spend a good amount of time making sure that our legal team, our plaintiffs, our expert witnesses, and our team at IFA are safe in doing this work, that we're monitoring for threats, that we are protecting people from the extremists who use those sorts of threats and harassment to try to escape accountability, which is their MO. And it also means that for me, and I'm sure for many others, 
we try to step away from the work when we can and be mindful of the fact that this can be a very dark place to live in. And that while there are many extremists, there are many more of us than there are of them. I'm really glad you said that because I do think whether you're looking at this every day or whether you're not, right? Whether you're just reading the news with so much of a focus on hate and extremism because of the realities, it can feel like we're outnumbered. But I always, to your point, find comfort to some degree that for every one of these awful instances or incidents that occur, there is so much response. There's so many people who reject it, say this is not what we're about, lawsuits that are filed, other ways that people try to push back against hate. We don't often tell those stories enough, just in general in this country, but it's pretty easy to find if you scratch the surface. And I think for those who are doing this or may feel overwhelmed, don't have to look that far to find good people standing up to this. So I'm glad you sort of reminded folks of that. Absolutely. When you're sort of in that dark place, there's also bad TV and good food and good whiskey and other things to distract yourself with, which has been a godsend in terms of stepping away from the neo-Nazis for, for some time. So not everybody you know, has a law degree. Not everybody has time to spend looking for extremists and trying to identify them and share them with authorities. But a lot of people want to be part of an effort to push back against extremism and hate, what we were just talking about. Is there any advice that you have for people on what they can do? Like one thing that somebody can do to be part of sort of the fight for good? Well, there's so much that people can do. If you want to be involved in suing a Nazi, if you want to quite literally help sue a Nazi, you can do so through Integrity First for America. You can go to integrityfirstforamerica.org. You can donate if you're so inclined. Those contributions directly fund our security, our evidence collection costs. The legal work is done pro bono. So it's those contributions that really keep us safe and ensure that we can move this case forward safely and effectively. And I should say that the ADL, among others, has been deeply supportive of this work for which we are grateful. Folks can donate at integrityfirstforamerica.org, sign up for case updates, spread the word, whether or not you have a capacity to do any and all of those things. Anything that you do makes a big difference in letting people know there is a concrete, tangible way to fight back against these extremists. But of course, like I said before, the case is part of a much broader and necessary comprehensive approach to fighting extremism. And that includes holding our elected officials to account on the local, state, and federal levels, to enforcing hate crimes laws, to making sure that we are treating this crisis with the urgency it deserves. It means holding social media companies to account. The Stop Hate for Profit campaign that the ADL and Color of Change and others are a part of is so critical in that regard. And it means making sure that this issue doesn't fall off the radar screen when the news cycle moves on. I think it's so easy in this day and age to be worried about this when an attack happens, but news cycles move on. And we need to keep ringing the alarm bells on this until this crisis is treated with the urgency it deserves. It's funny that you say that in a sense. I've kind of hoped that the news cycle would move on from this for just like a couple of days. <laughs> Just to give us a little bit of a break, it hasn't. That's fair. It hasn't happened yet, you know. Yeah, but which I like is good news in some ways because I think people like you and like me have been trying to get people to pay attention to this for so long. But at the same time, it is exhausting. It is exhausting, and the truth is, I think you're hitting on a key element here: is that when there is a focus on something else, there are still people who are doing this work, 
and preparing for the next one. That's both at ADL, that's at Integrity First for America, it's other places, and that's not going to stop. But it would be nice to have a weekend back. (laughs) I agree. Where can listeners go to learn more about your organization? So you can visit integrityfirstforamerica.org. You can read the lawsuit, which I think is really the most detailed, comprehensive narrative of what actually happened in Charlottesville in August of 2017. You can read other case documents and news um, about our case. You can sign up for updates. You can donate, which, like I said, directly funds security and evidence collection costs. And there are even tools you can use to spread the word on social media and elsewhere to make sure people know this is happening. And we are going to trial in October of this year. And so if you sign up for updates on our site, we will make sure that you are getting regular reports on what's happening in the case, both in the lead up to trial and certainly during trial this fall. Awesome. I really appreciate speaking with you about this work. I look forward to being able to speak to you in person again when things maybe calm down with this pandemic. It's been a while since we were on a panel or able to do anything face to face. I will know when that happens and the news cycle is focused on something silly that things are starting to get back to normal. But I'm not going to bet on that anytime soon, but really, really appreciate you spending the time and really appreciate all the work that you do to hold people accountable and to continue to fight for justice. And likewise, thank you so much for having me. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.